This podcast is brought to you by FanshareSports.com, a website that compiles and curates the weekly recommendations of daily fantasy industry experts for you to gauge which players will be the most popular and which players are going overlooked. Head on over to FanshareSports.com and check it out. What is up, everybody? It is Pat James here with the Ride In NFL DFS podcast. We have a special edition, postseason edition of the Ride In NFL DFS podcast here for you today. Uh, mainly because I think it's critical to reflect in in DFS and in life. You know, whatever it is that you're doing, uh, your occupation, your hobbies, your family, to get better, to be better. It's important to hone your craft with reflection, and I think it's especially true in DFS because of how things change from year to year. Uh, for instance, pricing algorithms change. The games that are included on different slates change. Contests change. Rakes change. Everything changes from year to year in DFS. Uh, so what I've done is I've gathered up eight of the sharpest guys in the industry, uh, proven winners, to discuss the takeaways, the lessons learned, if you will, uh, from this past season. You can listen to this pod right now. You can listen to it throughout the off season, And then especially, I think it will be important to queue it up in August and September of next year as the 2019 season nears. So without further ado, let's kick it off with a little roster construction talk. I think John Proctor of Power Hour DFS hits the nail on the head here with a general trend we saw in 2018. John Proctor here with the DFS Power Hour. And the biggest change slash learning experience uh, for me this year was probably the viability of cheap plays, uh, both at the running back position and the quarterback position. I think for years, if you weren't playing the cheap running backs and the cheap quarterbacks, you were likely making mistakes in cash games and higher dollar single entries, anything that was a smaller field type of tournament, by paying down, you generally had an edge. But this year it was it was very different. Uh, the way that the pricing has evolved in that the quarterback pricing is much flatter. It just hasn't been a, it just wasn't as viable to pay down at the quarterback position and take those guys who were, 4,800, 5,200, whatever, um, you know, when 5,200 for a nobody, when you're paying 5,800 for Andrew Luck, just, it just didn't make sense this year in the same way that it did in years past. And I expect it will probably be similar next year, though. It's hard to imagine that the quarterbacks will be quite as efficient as they were this year. And then the same thing at the running back position, DraftKings was able to price up those running backs so that a, a backup running back taking over for somebody in years past, they would have been 3,300, 3,500, et cetera. Uh, this year, you know, 4,500, 4,800 on DraftKings. Um, a little cheaper on FanDuel. It was a little more viable. I know there was a, the week that Dalvin Cook ended up being inactive and, you know, Latavius Murray was cheap on both sites, but that was because it was late news. 
Uh, so anytime that we have early enough news, DraftKings and FanDuel both are pricing up these running backs so that they're just, you know, the punts just aren't as valuable as they used to be because they're so much more expensive. So I think just the evolution of pricing is something that we really have to take into consideration. And you just, you have to adjust as the pricing changes um, in this way. And if you don't, then you're going to be left behind. Thanks, guys. Great stuff there from John Proctor. You can find him at John Proctor VFS on Twitter. Basically, what he said about QB pricing was dead on. It was very flat this year. And as he mentioned, it was just so much easier than in previous years to get up to an elite pass catcher from those min price or very cheap signal callers like Case Keenum or Nick Mullins, guys that we would have rostered in the past because of the savings. Now you only needed a few hundred or a thousand dollars more to get up to guys that just provided a massive ceiling. Uh, and when I first started playing DFS long ago, six, seven, eight years ago, I don't even, I've lost track of time at this point. Jonathan Bales had a bunch of books out on the basics of DFS, uh, and it was gospel. And Bales is still, to, to this day, extremely sharp. Uh, and one of the things that he recommended in that book was that you pay up for quarterback that in cash games that you kind of locked in that 25 to 30 points from an Aaron Rodgers or a Peyton Manning, uh, and it made a ton of sense, and it was very profitable at the time. Then the idea transitioned from, well, why don't we pay down at these quarterback position because of the narrow range of outcomes, right? We're spending all this money to get up to Aaron Rodgers, but he's only outscoring uh, Andy Dalton by 10 points, whereas the discrepancy from a stud running back to a min-priced or a lower-tier running back was much greater. In comes 2018, and I think the trend changes again. So we could see over the course of five or six years, just the evolution of pricing and the algorithms have changed uh, our thinking on the quarterback position, at least in cash games. In 2018, it changed again. The pricing was so flat that it really didn't make much sense to pay down for quarterback most weeks unless you absolutely loved what that extra six or seven hundred dollars could get you elsewhere in your lineup. Now, I think there was a little bit more emphasis to pay down at quarterback on FanDuel as the ranges weren't as flat as DraftKings. And in this next clip, Elliot Christ of the Quant Edge does a good job of explaining why. And he also touches on the new flex spot that was added this year over on FanDuel. Before we get started, man, I just want to give a big shout out to Pat James and say I appreciate you having me on this. This is such a great idea. I really think it's going to help everybody's game. My name is Elliot Christ. I work for the quantedge.com. I want to talk about a few things that I really learned and emphasized this year. I think the biggest takeaway is that if you play on FanDuel, you have to use three running backs in the half point PPR system. You know, the, the, these receivers simply didn't match the ceiling of these running backs that are getting these. Five, eight, ten target games. Christian McCaffrey, Saquon Barkley, Todd Gurley, the touchdown equity these guys have in the offense. And people weren't even, from an ownership standpoint, matching the production that these guys were getting. So really attack three running backs should be your basic strategy on every lineup you set on FanDuel. Paying down at quarterback as much as possible is the thing that I will continue to do. I think that Obviously, Patrick Mahomes paid off when you paid up for him, but the $1,000 savings so often, especially you can get these rushing upside uh, cheap quarterbacks, has been a tremendously successful strategy for years, and I think it worked again this past season. You know, 
I think you either pay up for a stud tight end like Travis Kelsey or Zach Ertz again and again, or you find ways to punt based on funnel defenses. Uh, I tried not to. I tried to fade chalk defenses as much as possible. Find value below where there are guys that get pressure after the quarterback. You know, you really want to tell yourself a story about the way you think a certain game's going to go and build your lineups around that. Attacking chalk. I think is really important. You got to really it's it's more crucial than ever with so many services out there that give such great advice to understand, you know, what the optimal plays are and how the ownership projections are so key in today's game that you know, he may be uh, a receiver or running back may be an optimal play, but if he's going to be 60% owned, there it really might be a smart decision to fade that player and you know, you have to tell yourself stories where guys might not make things work as well and if you can get ahead of the field and just have a different lineup than everybody else you could just you know you can soar up that leaderboard so being willing to take chances on guys tell yourself stories pay down at quarterback whenever possible um, fade chalk defenses and just load up on running backs on Fanduel were some of my biggest takeaways from the 2018 season so it's important to keep in mind different sites, different algorithms. Um, I do agree that on FanDuel, there were more weeks where it was viable to pay down uh, at quarterback to get those three stud running backs in your uh, in your roster, as Elliot mentioned. And for me this year, running back really was all about jamming in as many studs as possible. It seemed as though sites were hesitant to, to bump the stud backs too high kind of like what we're seeing currently in the NBA with James Harden. You know, they don't want to price him too high. I don't know if it's because they think casual players will find it difficult to make a lineup and, and not play, and it'll drive down some of the traffic uh, within the industry if it's just too difficult to, to roster your favorite players. I'm not really sure. But uh, what we saw was in the beginning of the year, uh, Alvin Kamara, Todd Gurley, Saquon Barkley, and a few of those other stud running backs were routinely smashing value, uh, and they were routinely remaining priced near their median projection, whereas it seemed receivers, Antonio Brown, Michael Thomas, were priced near their, their ceiling projection. So basically, uh, this year, it just really made a ton of sense to me to a lot, most of my my salary uh, on DraftKings and on FanDuel to pay up for stud running backs and those massive workloads. Because once you drop down to the cheaper running backs that have those ancillary roles, they didn't meet value as often, right? I did an analysis with Fanshare Sports Tags, and it was far and away easier to predict which running backs above 6K uh, we're going to hit 3x or 4x value than it was uh, running backs under 6k. And what happens is they, they become game script dependent running backs once you get down into the 5, 4, 3k range on DraftKings. And what happens is uh, they can be basically scripted right out of the game based on how the game flow goes. Additionally, and this is something that John Proctor alluded to in that first clip, the free square is no more. Uh, basically, what would happen was if there was late-breaking news, there was an injury on Monday night, salaries had already been posted, the backup running back uh, that was thrust into a workhorse role the next week would be, you know, 3.5K, 
on DraftKings or 5,000 on FanDuel. And what the sites have done is they've done a really good job of at least making all of the backup running backs uh, $1,000 or $2,000 above min salary. So we saw it with TJ Yeldon this year. Um, he was thrust into a starter's role, but was still high 4Ks, I think. He, he smashed. He had a monster game. Uh, I think he caught about eight checkdowns. But he wasn't a free square, right? He, he wasn't an automatic plug-and-play at his salary. Uh, and uh, Proctor also mentioned the week that Latavius Murray was chalk uh, when he was unexpectedly the starter in Minnesota. That's something that, uh, especially in cash games, I had banked on for years is just getting that uh, value that, you know, they're going to be 80% owned. It's a free square. You just plug them in. You uh, beat the 20% of people that week in double ups that don't roster that player uh, because they basically don't know what they're doing. But honestly, the, the min price or near min price free square auto plug and play has largely gone by the wayside and I think that is not good for sharp players. Some people might think, well, it is good for sharp players because they're going to know how to create a lineup without those free squares. And that's true, uh, but I think having uh, that automatic play um, and having an edge on the 20 to 25% of people that don't play that free square in double ups and 50-50s um, does reduce the edge for sharp players as well. So for me, that usually led to paying down at wide receiver, uh, or at least not chasing any studs at the position most weeks. Uh, my preference was spending up on usually two stud backs. I usually tried to get two guys, um, two of the top five or six running backs uh, on the main slate into my roster. And then usually in the flex, or obviously depending on times of the games, uh, the third back would probably come from the five to seven K range, but I really wanted to try to get three running backs into my uh, lineups. Obviously that varied from week to week, but in cash games with their workload and basically with the, the floor that running backs, especially uh, game script independent, you know, running and pass catching backs, they were just who you needed to jam into your lineups this year. Um, there are very few weeks in which I had a receiver over 6k in my cash lineup. It's just the way I preferred to build lineups and it worked very well for me this year. I had a great year in cash, uh, but again, it's something we'll have to keep on our, our eye on going forward with regards to uh, DraftKings and FanDuel's pricing algorithm in the future. I do have to say that tight end was probably the most aggravating position this year. Uh, I took a few chalk bagels this year uh, at tight end with David Njoku and CJ Uzama to the point that as the season went on, uh, it made more sense to me to pay up at tight end on a week-to-week -week basis. You know, guys like Kelsey, Ertz, Kittle, and to an extent Eric Ebron were their wide receiver ones most weeks. Uh, but because they were tight ends, they were only priced like a wide receiver two or even sometimes a wide receiver three in that five to seven K range on DraftKings. So if there was enough cheap value at wide receiver, 
I was paying up for Kelsey or Ertz or Kittle uh, or Eric Ebron because you were getting massive amounts of targets, wide receiver one-like targets uh, for an extreme discounted price. Another really sharp NFL DFS industry guy here, Tyler Beaker of Pro Football Focus Fantasy, uh, with his takeaway from the 2018 season, which deals with rostering DSTs. Hey guys, Tyler Beaker here from Pro Football Focus Fantasy. One of my biggest takeaways from the 2018 season in terms of DFS was the pay down at defense. The 2018 season saw a 10-year low in rushing attempts, further emphasizing the NFL is a passing league. When selecting defenses in DFS, our primary objective is to find defenses that are going against pass-heavy squads so we have the opportunity for sacks and turnovers. Winning DSTs often find themselves on the plus side of variance with a touchdown to their name. However, the inherently volatile nature of a defense forcing a turnover and being able to run it back for six points is wildly unpredictable. Instead of paying up at the position, we should just embrace this touchdown variance and reallocate what a top-end DST's salary would be elsewhere on a more predictive position, and then punt at defense. In order to do this, there are two things to prioritize. First, target pressures allowed with poor offensive lines and quarterbacks that wait too long to throw. This is easy information to find out there. Quarterbacks with high sack percentages, quarterbacks with long time for delivery, offensive lines that allow the most pressures, hits, and hurries. These are the main things that we can focus on that disrupt an offense and lead to sacks and turnovers. Secondly, more dropbacks equals more opportunities for mistakes. Focus on high-scoring games with a potential for a weak quarterback or offensive line to be thrown often in the fourth quarter. Use Vegas to help find which games have high spreads and will likely have a squad throwing late into the game. Prioritizing pressures, sack percentages, and negative game script can lead to a profitable selections at the DST position. These key items are integral to rostering successful defenses, and I suggest starting with the lowest priced defenses and working your way up to see which ones check the most boxes for a successful DST play. Not only does it allow plenty of salary savings to reallocate elsewhere, but these plays are likely to be less lesser owned in large field tournaments where most people chase chalk defenses. Thanks guys, and good luck in 2019. So Tyler made some great points there about rostering DSTs. Uh, it is definitely, or I should say it was definitely, a smart move to pay down at DST this year. There was always uh, a few defenses in the bottom half uh, salary-wise that were rosterable, that had decent matchups, that had chances for sacks, turnovers, uh, fumbles, etc. The average salary of the number one fantasy defense on DraftKings this year was $2,800. And some weeks there was defenses priced as high as 4K on DraftKings. Uh, So it just goes to show you that just because an elite defense is facing a terrible team, it does not always mean that they are going to score a ton of fantasy points. In fact, I can remember back a few years when Seattle was facing a Jimmy Clausen led Chicago Bears team. The Bears were probably like 80% owned in cash that year. This was probably 2014 or 15. Uh, And they shut Jimmy Clausen and the Bears out. You'd think that that would lead to a monstrous amount of fantasy points. But what happened was Clausen notoriously played it safe, you know, check down after check down, didn't take any sacks, was actually afraid to take a hit. So he was getting rid of the ball quick. Uh, They basically just mailed in the game and I think the Seahawks got one sack 
even though they allowed zero points and they finished the day with 11 DraftKings points. So really what you want is, as Tyler mentioned, a ton of pass attempts. Uh, and really, to, to his point, just take a look at the 100-point thriller in L.A. on Monday night in Week 11 between the, uh, the Chiefs and the Rams. It produced the first and the fifth DST in fantasy point scoring that week. Uh, both the Rams and the Chiefs were in the top five DSTs despite the fact they gave up 50 points because there were so many dropbacks, there were so many chances for sacks, fumbles, uh, and I believe both teams scored a defensive touchdown. So really good points about roster construction there. Uh, moving on, we're going to ha- hear a clip from Eric McClung, uh, really sharp guy as well. He has some thoughts on recency bias and rostering guys when they're hot. What is up, riders? I'm Eric McClung from playerprofiler.com, host of Roto Underworld Game Night on Roto Grinders. Mr. Pat James himself asked me to share a thought or two, a takeaway, if you will, from a DFS perspective on the 2018 NFL season. So here goes. My lesson from 2018 is to ride hot streaks, whether it's Calvin Ridley early in the season, Josh Allen late in the season. Heck, Mitchell Trubisky was winning GPPs midseason. We use terms like points chasing, recency bias, and regression. We use them way too quickly to dismiss a sudden breakout performance from a mid-level or even suspect talent. Too often, I've been guilty of shrugging off these outbursts as just flukes, especially when they come from a player I've been low on. Sure, they're bound to regress, but that might not happen next week or even next month. So in 2019, I plan to get these streaky players into more of the tournament lineups that I've traditionally kind of held back in the past, rather than just blowing off a player that I don't like or don't believe can perform at such a high level over the long haul. I need to remember that DFS is a a snapshot, a moment in time. It's not the big picture. Sometimes we need to swerve into positive variance rather than looking for an easy way to run away from it. So that will do it for me. Find me on Twitter at Eric McClung. I've been a big fan of Pat and the Ride In Podcast, so thanks to Pat for having me take the wheel for a few moments here. And looking forward to the 2019 season, as well as Pat pivoting to video so we can finally debut DFS analysts in cars getting coffee. I'll see you then. So great points there by Eric. I think it's really important to differentiate between recency bias and a role change. Uh, We saw it uh, at the beginning of the year with James Conner, um, he was getting upwards of 20 carries, upwards of five targets. He obviously was mispriced egregiously in week one because the salaries come out uh, at the beginning of August. But even throughout September, it seemed like DraftKings didn't want to bump his price up too drastically uh, from week one to week two or week two to week three. So he just kept on rolling, and it was beneficial, it was profitable to keep riding James Conner, even though uh, it might seem like recency bias or it might seem that uh, his streak was going to end. The price really, the market really never corrected on Conner until October, and even still, he was uh, getting the requisite workload that would allow him to smash value at the prices that he was being rostered at. Uh, And then a few years ago, Doug Baldwin had that massive stretch in the middle of the year where he was catching touchdown after touchdown, multiple touchdowns in multiple games. It was one of the hottest streaks of a wide receiver I could remember. 
and each week you had to ask yourself, am I rostering Doug Baldwin again? Is this going to happen? Is this recency bias? Am I point chasing? And really what it was, was a role change for him. Russell Wilson had uh, found his guy and he just kept feeding Doug Baldwin. And it's very important to differentiate between recency bias and a role change, between variance and a role change. Uh, is it the fact that a certain player just got lucky this week or next week? Um, is there something schematically that the defense they're facing uh, allowed the offense to go to a certain player or has this player gained the trust of his quarterback uh, and that requires a, a little bit more of digging than you normally do for fantasy football uh, but I think very important is to is to differentiate there between is this just variance or has this player kind of caught fire and is that going to continue Okay, so the next topic I want to dive into is late swap and basically how it has evolved over the course of the last five or six years. Uh, and it has something to do with the elimination of island games. So when Monday night and Sunday night games were included on the NFL main slate, it was very easy to take the whole day Monday and reverse engineer all of your head-to-head -head opponents' rosters, right? You can add up their salaries, figure out what players they had left, if they had any at all. There was only one game. There was usually only one player at a price point. So it was very easy, okay? This guy has $6,000 uh, $6, left at wide receiver. He has Sammy Watkins rostered, okay? I also have Sammy Watkins rostered, and I am trailing him. So I'm going to pivot to Amari Cooper. That was the type of strategy that you had to put into place on Monday uh, to get a edge on your head-to-head -head cash games. Now, uh, they soon chopped Monday off of the main slate, and you were still allowed to do that or still able to do that with Sunday, right? There was still about 30 minutes to an hour before the Sunday night game kicked off. You can quickly go through your head-to-heads and swap out guys that had you boxed out right? If you had the same player as somebody else on Sunday night and you were trailing, you can swap them out. Or you could figure out if you were beating someone in head-to-head -head and you had different guys, you could uh, box them out by swapping onto the same player, basically. Um, but now that the main slate is the 1 and 4 p.m. games only, it's virtually impossible to figure out who your opponents have uh, in your head-to-head -head matchups. There are four or five games left to play at four o'clock. The one o'clock games aren't over yet. There's a million players that they can have in their lineup. Uh, so it's really hard to do that. Basically, what you would have to do is just realize that your lineups are underperforming and you would swap to just more volatile players that have a higher ceiling. I would only do that in 50-50s and double-ups because then you could still maintain uh, a true head-to-head -head win rate uh, of the cash game roster that you created, right? If you created a 35% tile uh, lineup, you don't want to, by swapping highly volatile players out, drop that and lose even more money. So I wouldn't necessarily do it an entire lineup swap in my head-to-head -head contests, but I would do it for my 50-50s 
and double ups. Okay, so the next person we're going to bring on here is a good friend of mine, Ryan Hodge, very sharp uh, DFS player, came in second, king of the beach a few years ago, uh, proven winner, really sharp guy, and he's going to talk about his takeaway from 2018, which had to do with this very topic, late swap. So one thing that I get, I guess this isn't even something that I learned this year. Uh, it's more just something that I think I needed to implement more this year. Uh, so more of a lesson going forward. And I think obviously you uh, hear a ton of late swap strategy, especially in the playoffs. I really feel like it starts to resurface, but in all actuality, we, we should be doing this in every single slate. Um, if you're behind and you need to swap off some guys in the afternoon game uh, to some lower owned high upside guys, you should be doing that every single Sunday, right? Not just in the playoff slate. So I guess that's lesson one. But the lesson that I really uh, took home, I think this year was on those late swaps, moving to wide receivers only. Um, If I'm behind and I'm really drawing dead in lineups, I guess you could move to maybe running back option six, you know, in your flex, uh, who, who is going to be relatively low owned and still has a decent outcome, you know, and, and a good range of outcomes. But at the end of the day, when you're swapping lineups, you should really be trying to maximize your upside. You want the highest range of outcomes uh, and you really will, you really want the highest ceiling, right? And I think that comes from those wide receiver positions. And that's really, really what you should be looking to, to swap to. So not only using late swap, uh, that's not a lesson learned, I think this year, at least hopefully it isn't, but really swapping to wide receivers and wide receivers only in those dead lineups and really trying to maximize that upside. So that is a, Lesson learned for the 2018 slash 2019 season. Um, All right, cheers. So super sharp thought process there by Hodge. Not only is getting a wide receiver into your lineup smarter because they have higher ceilings, but most of the time the sharp players in these contests, if you're playing high dollar contests, if you're playing high dollar 50-50s, head-to-heads, that these guys are going to have three running backs uh, in their roster. They're going to have a running back in their flex. And I think pivoting to a high ceiling wide receiver, such as a Tyree Kale or Antonio Brown, uh, is a very smart move if your lineup is in rough shape. So the last part of our 2018 takeaways uh, of the NFL DFS season is going to be about game selection, which I think is a very underrated portion uh, or category of DFS in terms of honing your craft and turning a profit. It's very important to be selecting the correct games, to be getting the correct percentages uh, of your bankroll in play based on what your goals for that season are. The first segment here is from a very good friend of mine, uh, actually a native of the same part of the country as me, uh, northeastern Pennsylvania, John Kelly. Game selection is nothing new, but I honestly feel it's the most important aspect of daily fantasy sports, especially for those that are looking to play more seriously or maybe a higher volume, that sort of thing. But basically, you know... 
just looking at a contest one day, 20% of the field caches or 23% of the field caches may not seem like a huge deal, but over the course of an NFL season, you know, that's the swing that could, it could swing it from a profitable season to a losing season, perhaps, especially with higher dollar entries. It could really go a long way. I know me personally, I've had multiple weeks where just a min cash in one of those tournaments would swing it from a losing week to a profitable week or from a profitable week to a very profitable week. And because I wasn't um, disciplined with my game selection where there was pro probably better tournaments out there for me. Um, so that's one thing that I definitely, especially the second half of the season, I focused on having a more disciplined game selection. And I've definitely seen the benefits of it. It's the single most important thing that I'd recommend to any DFS players right now. So solid points there by John Kelly about making sure your contest selection is right on point. Um, you can download extensions for your browser, widgets, whatever you want to call them, uh, that display, you know, the rake, the payouts, the uh, percentage of uh, entrings paid out in contests right on the DraftKings main screen. I, I suggest you do that if you have not. One of the things that I did was I loaded my um, contest history into an analyzer and I wanted to see the discrepancy in my 50-50 contests and my double-up contests. And actually, believe it or not, my double-up contests, I had a higher win rate. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense. 50-50s uh, uh, pay out half the field. Double-ups pay out less than that, like around 43 to 45%, depending on the size of the contest. Uh, but I've come to some conclusions, and it, it, they're anecdotal. Um, it's conjecture, but I think that because most of the double ups I was playing in were single entry and um, guaranteed payouts right on the main screen, I think that those contests may have softer competition in them. Uh, some of the more novice players don't burrow through the 50-50 contests that are kind of hidden in the lobby. You kind of have to search for them. And also, DraftKings and FanDuel this year uh, kind of limited the amount of 50-50s that they put into the lobby. I know for sure they limited the sizes. The, the 500 or 1,000 man 50-50s do not exist. They're all double ups of that size. Uh, and for whatever reason, my double up win rate was a tad higher. It wasn't substantial or anything crazy, but it, it was higher uh, in double ups and 50-50s. So I'll monitor that going forward, potentially put all of my uh, cash game bankroll into double ups rather than split it between double ups and 50-50s. Okay, so next up we have Peter Overzet, uh, also known as the Mans, Pete Manzanelli. Uh, he is a co-worker of mine at 4for4.com. He's hilarious. I highly suggest that you follow him on Twitter at Peter Overzet. Uh, and he has also some things to say about contest selection. Hey guys, uh, it's Peter Overzet here. And uh, Pat requested that I record some of my takeaways from my 2019 DFS season. He also stipulated that it must be recorded in a car per the theme of the show. Uh, thought that was unnecessary, but Pat's a nice guy. So here I am, uh, going 80 miles an hour on 95, weaving in and out of traffic. And yeah, what did I learn this year? 
not enough apparently because I'm down four figures. We'll we'll leave it at that. Let your imagination run wild as to to if that's low or high four figures. Uh, my biggest mistake early on was just playing too many different game types. My game selection was awful. Fire at the Millie, fire at the Slant, do some three max, some small field stuff. I also don't play any cash, so I am at peace with the fact that I'm going to have a ton of losing weeks, but I'm told, people tell me, that eventually you should sprinkle in a big win in there. That's just kind of what people say, so I'll take their word for it. Uh, Haven't gotten around to taking that advice yet. Uh, But halfway through the season, I did start to focus primarily on three max, and I slowly started to get slightly unstuck as I filtered every decision through the three max lens because I think early on my three max lineups were way too contrarian because I was always just firing at the milli, and I think I got better at making smarter contrarian pivots and not just wild milli-type contrarian plays. And I guess when I really pull back, I think the trickiest thing for me is DFS is just a hobby. I'm never going to put enough time into it to be really, really good. I'm just not. I would rather spend my time doing other things. So I have to find that sweet spot of keeping it fun without just absolutely punting, which inevitably makes it not fun. But I think by focusing on a specific game time like 3 max. And then also those free uh, or rake-free Yahoo tournaments uh, that they were having uh, a lot toward the end of the year, I was able to see improvement in my rosters and make back some of my donations just by really focusing my game selection. So yeah, who would have thought um, not just splashing around in every possible tournament uh, would lead to better returns? So yeah, I guess that's my advice. Game selection, you know, follow your bliss. Ask yourself... Does this game type bring me joy? And if not, discard it. Uh, All right, actually, I'm getting pulled over right now for going 90 in the 75. Uh, I got to go. So I feel absolutely terrible that Peter Overzek got pulled over uh, by the police there. That is very unfortunate. I did not require anyone to uh, record this podcast from a moving vehicle. Uh, I would only leave that to professionals like myself here on the Ride In NFL DFS podcast. But, I mean, what can you do? Sucks that it's going to cost him about one fifty dollars to be a part of this show. But he did raise some good points. Um, I think, again, I'm going to go back to loading your contest history into an analyzer. Um, Basically you have to figure out where you excel. Uh, For me personally, it's in double ups. Uh, I'm not a great head-to-head player. I don't know why. I don't know if it's just sharper players are in the head-to-head lobby or the guys that scoop me are just really good players uh, or I'm not playing enough volume to see the correct return. But I put most of my cash game money in double ups because that's just where over the last five years the best return has been for me and it keeps working so I keep doing it. As far as GPPs go, I just single entry is is where you'll find most of my GPP lineups and what you do if you play three max or single entry is you're sacrificing the big payday for a smaller field. 
I feel as though that you don't have to be as contrarian in single entry. Now, that said, the ownership percentages on the chalky players are going to be pretty crazy. So if you like one person to fade, um, I've had a lot of success this year uh, playing the chalk QBs and RBs in single entry, but going off the board at wide receiver, tight end, and defense. Um, I hit the hit a $12 single entry, I think it was week 15 or 16 on Saturday uh, in a two-game slate, and I just I had Mark Andrews who was barely owned and he caught that long bomb from Lamar Jackson. Just things like that uh, in single entry if you have uh, that one player that nobody has that erupts, um, it's much easier to climb the, the uh, leaderboard than it is in a huge field GPP. The, the drawback is when you bank one of those tournaments, it's nowhere near the massive payout of a large field GPP. Okay, we are going to close out the show with my boss at 4 for 4, the director of DFS, TJ Hernandez, great guy, one of the sharpest guys in the entire DFS industry. Keep an eye out on his Twitter feed throughout the offseason at TJ Hernandez. He always drops incredible stats, incredible nuggets. He'll have podcasts with Holden Kushner uh, that are just dynamite uh, as far as DFS theory and DFS strategy. He has a pretty interesting take uh, on rake and, and more specifically competitive rake and how to take advantage of that. What's going on? This is TJ Hernandez, the director of DFS at 444.com. My biggest takeaway from this season was the re-emphasis of game selection, especially down the stretch. Uh, for those that didn't catch it or, or don't know, uh, over the last month or so of the season, Yahoo was adding a, a pretty big GPP with guaranteed overlay. And then through the playoffs, they added a rake-free contest. And it was very interesting because even some of the bigger players in DFS in terms of, of players or touts uh, weren't aware of this or just simply weren't playing it. And the average player is so drawn to the biggest contest on the main sites that something like this can really bleed into the 2019 season. And if a site like Yahoo uh, does decide to push the envelope in terms of things like offering a competitive rake, it can really be a game changer for uh, the user and for other sites that have to start competing and considering uh, offering that competitive rake. And we're at a point in DFS where it's very hard to find an edge in terms of lineup building because there's so much good information out there and so many quality tools that from a strict lineup building standpoint, uh, it's very hard to be better than the next player. But we saw even in this sophisticated time in DFS that these high quality contests are still being ignored by uh, good players and especially by casual players. So if you can find these edges going into next season or any time in DFS, I, I think it's very important and something that I've emphasized in the past before. But uh, it's it's one thing that ended the season on a very strong note for me by uh, finding that competitive rake and taking advantage of it and kind of reinvigorated my excitement for DFS because uh, this is something that not only can... Uh, 
add to a, a more positive experience for the average user just because um, if everybody if there's more money in the in the prize pool that's going to be better for everybody but even for the serious player uh, that's that rake is adding to your bottom line directly and it's something that I'm really excited to see uh, how it plays out going into 2019. So I wholeheartedly agree with TJ there. Shopping around for the best contests is a crucial part of DFS. Don't let yourself get locked in to one site and remain diligent with overlay. It's not as prevalent as it was four, five, six, seven years ago. Uh, but even this year on DraftKings, it was in the middle of the season. I think it might have been week nine or ten. I was in the DraftKings lobby at about 12.58 or 12.59. And all of a sudden, I saw a slew of $5 and $10 double-ups pop up with like a minute and a half left to go until lock. So I threw a bunch of my, I threw my cash game lineup into a bunch of those tournaments they ended up only filling, there were only 23 mans that paid out uh, 10 players, but they only ended up filling uh, 18, 19, or 20 across the board. So basically I played about $50 or $100 in double ups rake free uh, because I just so happened to catch those tournaments get posted uh, and it just so happened that they didn't fill by a few entries. Uh, so that's going to do it for our 2018 NFL DFS takeaways and lessons learned. I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. I hope you enjoyed all of the sharp takes from our eight guests that had a bunch of great things to say. Uh, and I strongly urge you to cue this podcast up as the 2019 season nears. Until we meet again, I wish you all of the health and happiness 2019 has to offer. I will talk to you in September.